The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. If you have your Bibles, would like to follow along as we look at God's Word this morning. We're we're jumping out of 1 Peter and we're this is more of an officer's sermon. And uh, I would just say, as we look at this text, um, I think there's something in here for everybody. One is for us to think through as members and thinking about who could potentially be deacon or elder uh, in our church. Um, it's good for wisdom and praying through that. It's also very sobering to, to the officers, if you're an elder or deacon, of these sobering uh, qualities characteristics of what's required. And then I would say to all of us, uh, particularly younger people, um, I, I tell young ladies, this, this is what you want to marry. This is the quali- qualifications or characteristics of a mature disciple. What does a mature disciple of Jesus look like? Well, it looks like a mature believer is what's being laid out for us. Um, and this is what young men should aspire to be, uh, these different attributes of deacon and elder. So I think there's something in here for all of us. I, I hate this to be like a bait and switch because I said this was going to be kind of a complementarianism sermon. And I, the reality is I had three sermons. I'm jumping over chapter two because I feel like we need to start here. We'll come back to chapter two and deal with this most difficult text, one of the most difficult texts in the Bible um, and wrestling with uh, how come only men are to be elders and deacons. We're going to get there. But the season of nomination ends at the end of the month, and then it's Palm Sunday, and we've got to start officer training. So I had to land somewhere. So this is where we've landed. So chapter 3, we're just going to look at verses 1 to 13 today. Let's give attention. This is God's holy and inerrant word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into, this, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
Let's pray again together. Father, as we consider this portion of your word today, we pray that, Lord, you'd open up each of our hearts, help us to be attentive, help us to see the importance, Lord. We ask that, Lord, you would provide for your church, and we pray that you would lead us as a church as we think through uh, the need for more officers and asking for you to provide. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, we're jumping into verse 20, uh, or chapter 3 this morning, and I just want to say from the outset, like, we, we do these forms, you know, these officer nomination forms, we have a process where you nominate somebody, they have to agree to be nominated, and then we do a training with them for about 12 weeks, then they're interviewed by the elders, then they're voted on by the congregation, and that's the process, yet... The Bible says in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, this is Paul to the Ephesian elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes overseers. We go through this process, but it's the Lord who chooses his people. He's the one who furnishes his church with the gifts. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, Ephesians 4, it says he gave gifts to men. And the gifts that he gave is he gave son to be pastors and teachers and for the building up uh, of the flock and basically for equipping the saints to do the works of ministry. And so there is a process we go through, but I just want you to see that ultimately it's the Lord who's working through this process. And, um, you know, I... um, I think it's important, too, to, to see the, the, we read verses 14 and 15 here of chapter 3 to remind us that what Paul is getting at is how we're to behave in the household of God. And he refers to the church as the church of the living God, but it's a pillar and buttress of the, of the truth. And it's kind of like, these are never fun passages to talk about. In one sense, like, you know, where's the excitement? You know, we want to see, you know, I remember hearing a sermon on this some years ago, and I'm thinking, where's Jesus in that, you know? And, and the answer is, well, Jesus models all of these attributes. Jesus is both the shepherd and overseer of our souls, to whom we've now returned, First Peter 2.25, but he's also the one who came not to be served, but to serve, but to deacon, And he gave his life as a ransom for many. He's the ultimate servant. And so Jesus models, and in a sense, he is both a deacon and an overseer. And so it is important. Um, So as you see these different characteristics, you're seeing what does the fruit of the Holy Spirit look like in a mature believer and the things that we're looking for and a deacon or an elder. But ultimately, we're, we don't get to decide for ourselves who gets to be a deacon, who gets to be, like, we don't get to make up the qualities or the characteristics. Like, oh, you know, he needs to be, you know, a great giver. He needs to give beyond the tithe. Or, you know, he needs to be one who, you know, whatever you come up with, you know, that he, he observes Lent or something. You know, whatever you, the list has been given to us. We don't get to decide because the reality is it's all about the truth. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we're to be living in accord with the truth, speaking the truth, believing the truth, placing our hope in the truth. We don't get to decide for ourselves what we think 
a good leader should be. And, and it's kind of like nobody really thinks about these passages a whole lot until things fall apart. Meaning when a church all of a sudden begins, it's kind of like, the, the sorry to make fun of the people in the back, but when the people in the back are doing their job, you never turn around, you never see them. The slides move on command, you hear the voices when they speak. They're doing a great job, but what, if all of a sudden there's a hiccup, what does everybody do? They turn around and, they, and, and the poor person is like, you know, oh my goodness, you know. And it's like, if you're, it's like that with, with elders and deacons. If they're doing their job, everything's great. Nobody hears about it. But when something screws up and all of a sudden there's problems, it's often there's an internal problem and there's an there's a issue in leadership in the peace and purity of the church. And so these are important things to wrestle with. And I would just say, as you look at this, what are elders and deacons to do? Isn't it interesting that it doesn't really talk about that at all? I mean, it's all about what they're to, to, who they are, the character, but it isn't say, you know, the only thing about the elders that we're told they're to do is they're to be apt to teach. That makes them, that's a, a, something to be done. And it doesn't really tell you with deacons what their job is, what they're doing. It just tells you character qualities of what they are to be. And it, I just think that's interesting because we live in a day and age where it's all about what you do. Right? David Brooks in his book, Road to Character, he talks about resume virtues and eulogy virtues and how everybody thinks, oh, you know, I'm, I'm living for the eulogy virtues. And in reality, he says everybody's kind of living for resume virtues. And the resume virtues are all about your accomplishments, your awards, your advancements. You do this, you do that. And we spend so much time just doing, doing, doing. But the eulogy virtues are the issues of character, the character qualities. And that's what you see here in this passage is it's really not about resume virtues. Not a whole lot of resume building here, is there? But the eulogy virtues are here. And so as we think about choosing elders and deacons, it's not about who's popular, who you're personal friends with, who's a good professional and great in the work world. Now we're to look at their piety. And in leadership outside the church, leaders are chosen based on their abilities, their gifts, their money, their influence, their power, their popularity, their, their charisma. But their personal life is off limits. I mean, you'll often hear a politician say, the two things you're not allowed to talk about are my wife and my, fa- and my kids. <laughs> and yet, as you're looking for leaders in the church, it, it, Paul's actually saying, no, no, look there. And the idea here of keeping children submissive is like if he can't lead his own household, how is he going to lead in the church? How can he care for the church? So it is a whole different grid of which we're to look through. And even the whole thing about, you know, don't look at my wife. Well, here we're talking about deacons likewise. So just as, as the elders have certain characteristics, and even the deacons' wives get a, get a mention in verse 11. And they're not to be uh, and this idea here um, is they must be dignified, not slanders. And the idea of slanders is really, the idea is, is diabolos, is devils. They're not to be mudslingers, character assassins, or slanderers. And often what happens with, with deacons is, see, deacons are working with people with needs. And often they're privy to information that the rest of the church doesn't have. The deacons have this responsibility of caring for the, the, um, when people need help in the church, you never hear about it. 
You know, it's not like, I mean, the mission committee gets to report every year. Here's where your money went. You gave to the Whitefields offering. Where did it go? And we want to, you know, hey, we feel great. It went to this, this, and this. We don't hold up a slide and says, here's where the deacons fund money went to. We help this family. We help this person. We help that. There, there's none of that. It's all quiet. And that's the way it should be. So that the dignity of the person who's helped is, is kept under wraps. It's only for the deacons. And so that's, that's important. And so... Uh, as what Paul is getting at here is, as goes the leadership of the church, so will go the church. And what you see both of elders and deacons in the Bible is there's always a plurality. There's always more than one. And we need that because if one person gets all the power, that's a recipe for disaster. So what you see here in this text is, um, you know, there's a plurality. Deacons are mentioned. And when the deacons are mentioned in Philippians 1.1, it's the elders and the deacons. When Paul calls the Ephesian church, the elders together in Acts 20, he calls the elders. It's plural. There's more than one. First Peter 5, we looked at last week, exhort the elders. And if anybody's sick, what is he to do? Let him call the elders of the church. It's plural. And that's important because we just see that running throughout Scripture. They're, they're, not one person has been entrusted with the authority, but that the people choose their leaders and, and they're to put things in order is what Paul told uh, Titus in Timothy 1. And putting into order is where we get the word for ordination. And so Paul had left Titus in Crete uh, to put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So we see a plur- plurality. So the elder's job is to feed and to lead. And with respect to their age and to their dignity, they're called elders or pres- pres- presbyters is the Greek word. And that's where we get the word Presbyterian. We believe in elder rule of the church. We see that in scripture. But with respect to the nature of their tasks, they're called overseers. And some, that word is often translated as bishops. And it's where we get these Word for Episcopalian or Episcopos is the actual Greek word. And the terms are used interchangeably in the Bible. Paul calls the elders together in Acts 20, yet he reminds them that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos. He's made them bishops. He's made them... uh, And so we see that these terms are used interchangeably. And then the office of deacon came together in Acts 6 so that the elders could focus on the ministry of word and prayer and the deacons would would do the deed ministry of taking care of the Hellenistic widows. And so the word ministry was what the elders needed to focus on and the deed ministry is what the deacons were focused on. And so the deacons serve and they take burdens off of the elders' plate so that the elders can focus on the feeding and leading. And I would, I would say that it doesn't mean that the, the elders don't do any serving. Um, but I would also say for us too, you don't want to think of the deacons as kind of the glorified janitor or the JV elder, uh, the JV, this is the JV position. Um, and hope, hopefully maybe someday they can make it to the varsity team. And I've seen churches like that where, you know, you start as a deacon and you're hoping you do well so that you can be moved up and promoted to, to the uh, elder. The heart difference between the two is just how they respond to God's word according to their gifts. The heart of a deacon, and my dad was, was a deacon. And I can say about my dad, he was a good one. And what he loved to do is he loved to visit. He loved to visit um, the elderly 
the shut-in. Uh, he would take me with him to the hospital. Uh, I learned more from my dad than probably in some things than I did in a seminary classroom. But he, he had a heart for people. And the heart of a deacon, though, wants to serve practically with their hands and their feet and, and, and stewarding and shepherding money so that the ministry or where needs arise, where they need help, the deacons can come alongside and help. Whereas the heart of an elder wants to respond with, as the word is working in them, as they want to respond with teaching and caring for the flock and shepherding and overseeing. And so it's a little bit different. And, and so, it, you know, and it's interesting because in Scripture, we see some of the deacons at the beginning were great preachers. I mean, Philip and Stephen were amazing preachers, and yet they were also had this responsibility as deacons. So they both hold positions of sacred trust. They both direct and care for the family of God. They, they handle problems with money. They handle problems, and, and the deacons are often, you know, having access with people's most intimate details of their lives, with their checkbook, and how they're spending their money, and how they can need help with that. And so, and often they're being exposed sometimes to people that have been abused or taken advantage of. Um, and so the, the, the deacons need to be men of proven integrity. And just a couple quotes from church history. John Calvin had a lot of experience with this in Geneva, and he set up a diaconate or functioning group of deacons, and he said it's necessary for them to be provided not only with the other graces of the Spirit, but also certainly with wisdom, for without it that task cannot properly be carried out. Thus they may be on their guard not only against impostures and frauds of those who are far too inclined to begging and suck up what was needed for the, for the brethren who were in extreme po- poverty, but also against the slanderers of those who are constantly making disparaging remarks, even if there's no occasion for doing so. For we are, for as well as being full of difficulties, that office is also exposed to unjustified complaints. So that's Calvin commenting on the deacons. And Martin Luther says that the deacons or the diaconate is a ministry for distributing the church's bounty to the poor in order that the priests might be relieved of the burden of temporary concerns. And deacons throughout the centuries have ministered in secret, collecting monies for the needy, distributing it as needed. Deacons take care of people's material needs in a spiritual way. And so what's laid out for us in this passage, okay, is qualifications listed both for deacons and for elders. And I'm just going to kind of run through them, and I'm mainly going to focus more on verses uh, 1 to 7. Um, so let's kind of just jump in. First of all, the question of should the office pursue the man or should the man pursue the office? Okay, because it starts off with if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Should the office pursue the man or should the man pursue the office? The answer is both. He desires a noble task. He desires a good work, but one must examine his motives. You know, if, if you have no desire, and this has happened and I've told people too, like people that go through the training, probably a third of the people that have gone through the training to be an officer in the church have decided, you know what, it's not for me. <laughs> and, and I remember one time we were really torn with a guy, whether he was called or not. And he came to the elders and he presented, and he said, you know, I'm really not sure. Basically, I don't really have this internal desire for the office, but I'm hoping you can confirm that for me. And whenever that burden's been put on the elders, the elders have always said, no. If you don't have it, 
Like, if you're looking for us to confirm that, and I remember calling him the next day, being really nervous, you know, and telling him, hey, you know, the elders just don't think that right now you should pursue this. We're concerned about the internal call. And the person just said, I am so relieved. (laughs) You know, I was dreading that you were going to say, you know, the elders are... And so you have to desire the office. And so that's important. There has to be like this internal call and pull that, you know, yes, I aspire to do this. Now, we do have to, you know, work through those motives because there has been people in the past and a couple of times, and I've always kind of had my antenna up when someone says, you know, I really like to serve because there's a few things I'd like to change. And that's happened a few times. And it's like, whoa. And then they say, and my wife has nominated me, you know, but nobody else in the church has, but their wife has. Or something. Get a little concerned about that. Um, so you want to work through your motives. Is, that, is your motive to please yourself? Is it to please the Lord? And is your, what if it's an overweening desire? Like, man, if, if I don't become an, an elder or a deacon, my life is really not complete. Like, you know, I really have to have this to complete myself. Um, why are you serving the office? Is it because the Lord is, you sense, is calling you to this office and you have an internal pull and then you have this outward confirmation of others saying, you know, I think you'd be good at this. You should, you should consider this. This is not a popularity contest. This is not a way for you to have power or control or influence. Then the requirement here is that he must be above reproach. And it's interesting that this list kind of begins and ends with these qualifications. They're all about one's reputation. And so we're to take an insider look. That's verses 2 to to. Uh, six and then verses seven is also the outsider look like what do outsiders think of you Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to be faultless or nobody would qualify but Jesus it means rather a blameless reputation observable conduct that if someone were to say can you give a reference for this person that you can enthusiastically say yes I and there's not a red flag that you'd have to mention that no I I can get behind this person You want to nominate people that are followable. These are people you want to follow and model. That's that's key. And notice that there's spiritual warfare involved. I mean, twice in verse 6 and 7, guess how verse 6 ends, and guess how verse 7 ends? Devil, devil, like, whoa, you know, you're dealing with spiritual warfare here. And the devil would love to have his way of finding a way to ruin you. And so it says, don't pick someone who's a recent convert or someone that's not thought of well by outsiders. And so those are on guard. And so we do realize, man, there, there is a spiritual warfare component here. So the elders must be above reproach because we're to shepherd the flock, but it says not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. First Peter 5.3. Or as Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Philippians 3.17, brothers join in, in, in imitating me, keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Basically saying, follow me. And then Hebrews 13.7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we have to be above reproach. Then it's this husband of one wife. We could spend a whole sermon on, on that. But obviously, I would say a couple things. And, you know, does that mean you have to be married? 
You know, if that was the case, then Jesus would be out, Paul would be out. I don't think that, I think the idea is that if you, if one is married, he's to be the husband of one wife. So what does that mean? Well, certainly polygamy would be uh, applicable. In that day and time, polygamy was still being practiced in the Roman world. And certainly as God calls people to himself, you're to remain in the state in which you were called. And so, you know, we with the Richardsons recently, we had dinner with Bert and Nancy Williams in Uganda, and there, there's still some issues of polygamy there in Uganda. And difficult things that happen where, uh, you know, a, a guy comes to Christ and he has two wives. And is the, so does he get rid of a wife so he can become an elder? <laughs> no. Um, he's to remain in the state in which he's called, but he can't be an elder. And so that would be part of what that means. But it, it means more. Um, and I think the idea here is that, you know, if, if you say, well, just one wife, and that mean, does that mean if, if your spouse dies and you remarry that you're no longer can be an elder because, you know, you've had more than one wife? No, I don't think it means that. Otherwise, good and godly men would be punished for doing something good. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And Scripture makes it clear that if your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. And then what about divorce? I don't think Paul is speaking uh, necessarily to this either. If there are biblical grounds for divorce, I think you would want to apply all the other qualities that you see in these verses and look at a man leading his home and determine if he meets the other criteria because he may have biblical grounds for his divorce. And we've had officers here in our church that have been divorced and served as officers. Um, One wife, is you can't be guilty of marital unfaithfulness and be an elder. You have to be faithful to your wedding vows. You can't be a flirt. You can't be emotionally or physically involved with another woman. And as Alexander Strauss in his book, Biblical Eldership, he puts it like this. The phrase prohibits all deviation from faithful monogamous marriage. Thus, it would prohibit an elder from polygamy, concubinage. That means like uh, having, uh, well, concubines. (laughs) Homosexuality. Sorry, I was, <laughs> I was running the Westminster Larger Catechism in my mind of keeping of stews, and that's a, forget that. I mean, I just, my mind just, sorry. Homosexuality or any other questionable sexual relationship. Positively, Scripture says the candidate for eldership must be a one-woman man, meaning that he has an exclusive relationship with one woman. Such a man must be above reproach in his sexual and marital life. And then he's to be sober-minded. And the idea here is you're looking for someone that's clear-headed, have good judgment. They're not drunk with wine and they're not drunk with this world. They're to be vigilant. The idea is to be ready for war, not asleep at the wheel. Watch out for the wolves that will come in among you, is what Paul warns the Ephesian uh, elders. Be self-controlled. The idea is here not to be impulsive, or, or, but to be chaste, discreet, modest, doing things in moderation, not excessive. One who has a, is master over his appetite and passions and not ruled by fear, lust, or anger. As Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 16.32. So he must be self-controlled. He must be respectable. And that, this idea, not much reference to this in Scripture. The only reference is in Titus 2 when it describes woman's clothing being respectable or suitable apparel, but the idea is that having good habits, good behavior, it's not all fun and games. There's respect for this person. And then they're to be hospitable. And the word hospitable literally means lover of strangers. 
They're not a private person or secretive person. They're kind to strangers. They're kind to guests. They're kind to newcomers. They're open to ministering to them as they are able. And in Paul's day, the burden often fell to the, on, on the congregation to host these itinerant missionaries and pastors, as we talked about last week, because they didn't have you know, the Marriott or an Airbnb. And the roadside inns would be iffy and sometimes hard to find. And so the church is told to pursue hospitality, to chase it. Chase after it. Strenuous pursuit, Romans 12, 13. An elder must not only open his heart, but he must open his home. He needs to be hospitable. Then he needs to be able to teach. As Titus tells us that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And Paul is telling Titus they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for a shameful game what they ought not to teach. And so in the PCA, we make a distinction between ruling and teaching elders. And the teaching elders are typically, um, well, not always. I mean, typically, they're the people that get ordained and they go through and we're members of the presbytery and we're, my membership is actually not of this church, but of the presbytery. We had a meeting yesterday. Um, but all are to teach. But the teaching elder is, to, is laboring in that especially. And so we, we do make a distinction in our church, and that's obviously what we're nominating people to, is to be a ruling elder. And, and that doesn't mean that you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're in charge in and, and, and a way. Uh, sometimes the term ruling elders might be better to just say shepherding elders might be a better term, but... Anyway, they're not to be a drunkard. They're not to um, be given to drunkenness. They're not to be mastered by alcohol. They cannot be getting drunk. There are four views on alcohol that people have kind of landed on. You've got prohibition, abstention, moderation, and drunkenness. And the two end ones, they're both unbiblical. If you believe in prohibition, that alcohol is evil in and of itself, well, you just made Jesus a sinner because Jesus drank oinos, there's a Greek word for grape juice, and there's a Greek word for alcoholic, and it's, it's the real thing. Jesus drank wine, and so you can't be a prohibitionist. But you can't be a drunkard either, where Scripture clearly condemns drunkenness. So that leaves two positions, abstention and moderation. And some choose abstention because for certain reasons, lots of different reasons. Either they have a history of alcoholism in their family, or they just decide, you know, I don't, I don't like the taste, I don't, I don't like it or they feel like it's, it's a, not good for their witness. There are good reasons to abstain, and John the Baptist was an abstentionist. And yet there are also good reasons for moderations. Where my, Psalm 104, 15 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. It's, it's a gift of God. Paul tells Timothy to drink some wine with his stomach ailment. And so John's, the Baptist is an abstentionist. Jesus is a moderationist, but both qualified for positions of leadership, and we shouldn't look down on someone who's a John or a Jesus in their view of alcohol. But if they are a prohibitionist or a drunkard, that ain't going to work. Then they're not to be violent, and literally not a striker, not a brawler. A verbal striker, they have a chip on their shoulders, if they wear their feelings on their sleeve, if they're heavy-handed, they're not to be violent, not a verbal striker. Then they're to be gentle, not harsh, not mean-spirited, but tender. Words spoken are helpful, not hurtful. You remember Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. And so gentleness is not optional depending on your personality type. 
<laughs> or if you haven't had lunch or you drank too much coffee <laughs> or you're in a hurry. You know, we can make lots of excuses for being, being rude or harsh, but shepherds are to be gentle. We're told in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then we're told they're not to be quarrelsome. That means the idea is that without battle, taking no part, they're disinclined to fight. They want peace. They're not contentious. Not contentious. It doesn't mean conflict avoidance. Okay, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.23 that we have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies because you know they breed quarrels. And so our social media posts need to reflect that. The way we communicate to others and talk about certain subjects need to reflect that. Elders are not to take the bait that the culture so easily runs with and unravels over. Elders have the wisdom to understand an essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. Not to be a lover of money and to demonstrate their priorities are and it's not on this world. Lifestyle shouldn't reflect a lifestyle of luxury, but a, he's trying to, you know, he's not trying to keep up with everybody else with the worldly criteria for success. Matthew Henry says, covetousness is bad in any, but it's worse than a minister whose calling leads him to converse so much with another world, with another world. And then the dignity of good leadership in the home. A man may be a successful businessman. He may have climbed the ranks in the military. He might be an incredible manager, a leader, might be a great coach. Um, None of that counts. Paul says, look at the home. And Paul's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He must govern or lead his family well. And I think the idea here is, is of the Titus reading, I think it's better to say faithful children rather than believing children. And here it says submissive. And the idea is that Only God can save your children. And I don't think the text is saying to us that you have to have believing children because it would make the parents ultimate rather than proximate in bringing about their child's salvation. The children of elders should be submissive children, not wild and rebellious. And if the adult turns away from the faith, that's different. It's referring to children who are living under your roof. Children should not be a scandal in the church or the elder's family. They should be controllable. The other time, well, let's keep going. I mean, I think for us this morning, we need to be praying for our elders and our deacons, and we need to be praying for the Lord to lead us if he would have us to have more elders and deacons. Let's recognize that the devil here is at work, and so we want to be on guard against that. But in conclusion, let me just remind all of us that every every member is a minister, every member is, is a priest, and a king. Amazingly, it's Revelation 1.5, 1 Peter 2.9. But every sheep's not a shepherd, and God would have us have under shepherds to whom we must give an account. And we are called as members to obey our leaders, to submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for this will be no advantage to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul says, We ask brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for placing leaders in this church 
and local churches all over the world. And Lord, we thank you for your, your government and the way that you have designed it. We pray as best as possible, Lord, help us to conform the way that we do what we do here as a church to the word and not to the world and what the world says is what we should do, but what your word says and as best we can understand it. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for our Lord Jesus, who is the perfect deacon and the perfect elder. We thank you that he's done everything for us so we can come to his table. And we thank you that you're coming again and making all things new. We thank you for the privilege now to commune with you in Jesus' name. Amen.